This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week and rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is Adrian Lawyer, who is the co-director of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, an educator, an activist, and a native Mississippian. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I um, We first met a couple of years ago. I want to say 2015 or 2016. You did uh, a training down here in Las Cruces uh, for uh, people in uh, the, the field of public safety, educating us on how to uh, respectively uh, address and interact with members of the transgender community. And I, I have to say, uh, it left an impression on me. I really thought that I, at the time, kind of knew everything there was to know or was as woke as I needed to be, if you will. And mm-hmm. what I realized was that I had uh, plenty to learn, and I found you to be yeah. a really dynamic speaker and um and and with a great energy and, and and great ability to articulate things and and you were one of the first people I wanted to have on the show. You are actually episode three of season one, so welcome. Wow, I'm so honored. That's really amazing. Can you tell us? Uh, your, now your title is co-director of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Just give us a little bit of a description of of what the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico is, when it started, what you guys do. Absolutely. So we came into being in 2008. We're a statewide organization and we're a 501c3 nonprofit. And we do all of our work under three main sort of headers. So we do direct service provision, which means just plugging in and helping individual trans people in whatever way we can. People contact us from all over the state for help with name changes or finding a provider or Um, emergency financial assistance, or just peer support, just somebody to talk to. Um, But we also have a facility here in Albuquerque where we are providing services to the trans folks in the community here who typically are dealing with major resource insecurity, including um, potentially not being housed or being unemployed. So at our drop-in center, we have just food, hot food for folks to eat and safe bathrooms for people to use, rapid HIV testing, case management, all different kinds of services there. The second thing we do that you already mentioned is education, which which I love doing. That's I'm our, I'm our primary educator. <clears throat> and we get to go around and try to teach folks about trans people, the history, the data, the etiquette, uh, just, you know, uh, personal experiences, and that we've been able to train over 1,400 audiences now in 10 years, including medical providers, therapists, counselors, corrections, law enforcement, public safety. We've had many different faith communities invite us in to train. 
And the last thing that we do is advocacy work. So that can mean just being an advocate for someone on a one-on-one basis that way, but it can also mean policy advocacy, so helping to write trans policy for different entities around the state, um, and also legislative advocacy. So we've been uh, part of an effort to write and pass some laws here in New Mexico that improve safety and access for trans folks here in our state. Now, the fact that you're a co-director would tell me that there's at least one other person who holds your position or one similar to it. How many people are employed full-time? I would imagine you have uh, some sort of legal service or somebody either on, on, uh, on retainer or somebody who you prefer to go to for legal issues. I would imagine you have uh, mental, both mental and physical health professionals and social workers. So interestingly, you know, we were, we we started out as a very small, very grassroots organization with just very few resources. So the things that you're talking about, we primarily offer by working with partner organizations. So for the 10 years, the 10, 12 years we've been in existence, we've been building relationships with other organizations and individuals throughout New Mexico, and and now we're able to um, leverage some of those relationships to get those services to our folks in our community. So New Mexico Legal Aid does uh, office hours at our at our drop-in center once a week so that people can get hold of them and get the help that they need in that way. Um, Albuquerque's Healthcare for the Homeless was bringing in medical providers um, once a week, again, to do primary care and transition-related care for folks at the drop-in center. So we do offer those services but we don't have um, full-time staff that's on our payroll to do that. We, we work with other folks so that they can do the outreach to our community, and for us it's in-reach. Right? Have you had an opportunity to work with any lobbyists or do any speaking uh, to any committees uh, anywhere in the Roundhouse? In Absolutely. Yeah, last spring we helped to pass a law called the Vital Records Modernization Act. So it changed the way that you update the sex designation on your New Mexico birth certificate. So definitely we were up at the Roundhouse a lot um, testifying before committee and, and uh, trying to help secure those votes. Now, you are a trans man from Mississippi, um, of all places to grow up and, and deal with uh, figuring out how you express uh, your gender identity and who you are. I, would, I don't imagine Mississippi would probably be the most forgiving place or, or, or open place uh, for somebody who's dealing with really any being a member of any part of the LGBTQ and plus community? Well, I think that's absolutely true. I think it is still true that, that many of the um, ideas that, have, that we've formed around the country about that region, about the U.S., the American South are certainly true. And at the same time, I know there's, you know, a lot of vibrant LGBTQ organizing and community building that happens all over the South. So, you know, what we know is that marginalized folks often find a way to come together and support each other and, and uh, you know, help each other out in that way. But I, I definitely do feel that, <clears throat> for me, New Mexico is a better spot, and I was much, much um, better able to find myself and actualize myself um, living here in New Mexico because I moved out here in 1995 when I was – 25. So for me, it was it was it was a good thing to get away from from where I had grown up and and come to a place where at that time certainly things were more open. People were more openly um, putting rainbow stickers on their cars, um, you know, expressing LGBT identity in a way that at the t- at that time in the South people were still more afraid. 
For the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. I want to say it's Here We Are, but there was a Netflix series that was out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm, I don't. It's a group of um, members of the LGBTQN plus community, uh, some of whom uh, simply enjoy dressing in drag. Some may be transgender, but they travel throughout small town America and find several members of a community in various stages of life, their various identities to participate in drag. And what I found was they're, they're just visiting these small towns. And one of them was actually Farmington, New Mexico. And I was pleasantly mm. surprised to see what kind of reception uh, they were able to get. So maybe 2020 is a lot farther along than we, that we think we are as a society. Uh, what brought you to New Mexico? Oh, a woman, you know, I was following my girlfriend at the time out here who wanted to go to acupuncture school. And we lived in the Florida panhandle. And even in the 90s, there were acupuncturists in that part of um, the South, but there were no acupuncture schools. And the two most renowned ones in the country at that time were actually right here in New Mexico. So we moved out here so she could study. And that was in Santa Fe? Uh, The school was in Santa Fe, but they were just opening an Albuquerque campus that very year and were subsidizing the students who were willing to take their classes at the new facility. So. It was kind of a, for me, it felt like a stroke of luck because we didn't know anything about Santa Fe or Albuquerque, but I have come to love Albuquerque so much and feel that it's my home. So for me today, I'm really glad that we moved here to Albuquerque rather than Santa Fe. As much as I love Santa Fe, um, I'm really, I'm really, you know, proud of the roots and community that I've been able to build here in Albuquerque, and I'm glad this is where we landed. Well, when I moved to New Mexico in 1998, my father told me that people have been known to move to the Southwest and never leave. And of course, I, only, I was only out, I was only going to be out here for two or three years. But as as some people say, they don't call it the land of entrapment for nothing, right? You come here and you stay for the weather and the food and the people and the pace of life and the cost of living. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, as a member of the LGBTQN plus community and where when you first realized that you had uh, some things to contend with within yourself and how that journey started and, and how it brought you to where you are today. Sure. So the 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 important thing I want to stress before I do that is just to say that every single trans person is so different. And there was a time in, in this modern era where there was um, almost sort of a, an expected trans narrative that everybody shared these same stories and that everybody's path was very similar. And so for us these days in the education that we do, we find it really important to stress that everyone's story is different and everybody um, came at this from a different way, and that doesn't invalidate anybody, right? Like, for, for some folks, there were, like, stereotypical gendered behaviors or toys that they were drawn to as kids, but for other trans folks, that's not true. So we don't say, you know, you can only prove that you're trans because you wouldn't wear girls' clothes when you were two or three years old, right? There were there are transgender men who tried very, very hard to fit in as girls or women, Um, before they were able to take the lid off of this. And so everybody's story is totally different. But um, for me, I knew, I, I, when I talk about this, I feel that I knew I was a boy by the time I was two or three years old. But I was born in 1970, right? So there wasn't a lot of context to try to say that. You know, when I, what I was able to do was assert myself exactly around those things like clothing or toys or games or activities and for me as a young child, I definitely, like, hewed very close to things that I could identify as boys' things. So I would only wear boys' clothes. I only wanted to play with boys' 
toys, you know, whatever that even means now. But and back then, are, yeah. And, and back then, the term tomboy was used quite often. Absolutely, and I think it even still is. So I think that's what my mother probably thought that I was, and just didn't didn't you know had no framework whatsoever to think of me as a trans person. In fact, the word transgender wasn't even coined until the seventies, and I think not really popularized until the eighties or early nineties. So, you know, I think about the families we work with who are who are super supportive and accepting and loving of their trans kiddos. And I think my mom would have been that kind of an advocate, but she just did not have any kind of a framework or point of reference for it. She did not know what she was dealing with, you know. And it, so it, for me, then, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say my my understanding, and if I remember correctly from the training I attended a few years ago, uh, for a lot of your your teen and, and adult, or certainly into your adult life, uh, lived. Um, whether you knew you were trans or not, you, you presented as a cis female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, you know, still very gender variant. That's what I was just getting to is that at 15, I came out as a lesbian because for me, my attractions have always been towards female people. Um, and everybody kept insisting that I was female and I didn't have any way to explain it that made any sense. So I, I knew that I, I everyone expected me to be a woman, and I was only attracted to women, and I wanted to express myself in the most masculine way that I could. So for me, I came out at 15 and walked right into being what we called a butch lesbian at that time, um, which was a really masculine-appearing lesbian woman. So I wore only men's clothes even then. I had short hair, you know, all of that type of thing, where we know, of course, that lesbians look every possible way. There are hyper-feminine lesbian women. There are androgynous lesbian women. Being a lesbian doesn't automatically mean that you appear masculine. But for me, it definitely was that. It was a way, a doorway, for me to be able to express myself and carry myself in the world in the way that felt at least the closest to authentic that I was going to get. Well, so 19- you're absolutely right. I lived for about 20 years in that way. So if you're 15 years old, we're talking 1985 in Mississippi. What is it like being a lesbian in Mississippi in 1985? You know, the interesting thing about that for me is that I was in private school. So I went to an Episcopal um, college prep school in Jackson, where I'm from. And so it was a really alternative kind of scene. Like, you know, when we say the word Mississippi, I think people get a cartoon bubble over their head, you know, having an image of something, right? But for me... I'm from a really privileged family. Both of my parents have um, master's degrees or postgraduate degrees, and we're white. My Both my parents are white, and I'm white, and um, my dad was an attorney, so I was able to attend a, a college prep school in, in Jackson that's, you know, pretty well known around the country, and um, it was an environment where being different was really okay, and being smart was really valued. We put a big premium on being smart, so it was sort of like a place where it was cool to be smart. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't still really open about it. That era is is still when even people like Melissa Etheridge were still living in the closet, right? So we even had gay celebrities who weren't quite ready to come out. So it wasn't something that we were openly talking about or acknowledging. It. We didn't have a like a, a G- GSA or a an LGBT students club at my school or anything like that. But at the same time, my friends were pretty accepting of me, and I wasn't ostracized for being different in that way. I never felt like, you know, any violence could come to me in my in my sphere, right? Now, when I was out 
around town doing different things, I sometimes felt threatened or felt afraid. But in my day-to-day life, getting up in my household and going to school, I didn't feel fearful that way. Was I, was, it e- I was pretty much able to continue exploring who I was. Was it easier, do you think, to be an out lesbian in 1985 in Mississippi than to be, to, to be an out gay man? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Right? I think that's true about anything. I think that one of the fundamental sort of underpinnings of the of the discrimination and violence that gets visited on the trans communities, I believe one of the most foundational elements of that is misogyny and sexism. So certainly, I think even now, you know, we use the word tomboy even now to mean a girl who behaves in a masculine way, and typically we don't actually use that word to be an insult. It's generally thought of as kind of a neutral thing, right? She's a tomboy, whatever. But there's no word that we use for... For, for the opposite of that kid, right? There's no neutral term for a boy who likes things that we associate with girls or behaves in a way that we associate with girls. Right. So I think certainly when you think about lesbians and gay men, it's the same thing. It somehow is saying that you have a man who's allowing himself to be feminized by being in a relationship with another man. And I think in the South, that's still, and I think that's still difficult, even now. You mentioned, uh, you know, living for your first 25 years of life as a cis uh, lesbian, and there are different things people expect of you, different behaviors and things like that. And I can't remember the podcast, but I listened to one a number of years ago of somebody whose who's, who's journey was seemed to be a little bit like yours. And uh, when, when he was a, he's a trans man, but when he was a, living as a woman, a, a cis uh, lesbian, a very uh, self-described, very butch lesbian, and he said that when he was living as a woman, he could get away with certain ideas and certain uh, behaviors that, that associated with misogyny that were completely cool as a really butch lesbian. But when he trans over to be a man, it wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> I can understand that. I think that's definitely true. And I think that really has to do with the fact that the, that the gender... Um, roles and gender expression that happen in queer communities and lesbian communities is, is, is thought of as something that's more adopted than innate, right? There's something about it that, that is almost thought of as, um, you know, like you've examined the, the, the embedded systems and just taken the bits and pieces of it that work for you or that you're attracted to or that you like without mimicking or recreating the whole system, right? That fundamentally what you have are still two women in a relationship together. And not that you can't have domestic violence or abuse between two people of the same gender, right? But it's never going to be the same thing as the, as, the, as the political reality of a man and a woman in a culture like ours who are in a partnership or in a relationship together. And I would so imagine... I definitely had very similar experience to that because once you actualize yourself as a man, then then you're just behaving as a sexist man. And I would imagine that you probably have noticed people approach you differently, uh, maybe give you, uh, I don't want to say the benefit of the doubt, but there, there's a different a respect, my understanding is, that people tend to feel like they receive... Uh, living as a man uh, that they didn't experience before when living as a woman. That is 100% true. Well, while, while we're on that, now, so you, you live 25 years. Uh, at what point did you start to, to think that, you know, something's not matching up here? I don't, I don't quite feel like I'm 100% me yet. How did that all kind of come down? You know, I had always, I, that is something I can go back and say I always felt that way. 
You know, I just did not know how to explain it in a way that people would would not question my my mental acuity. You know, there wasn't a way for me to walk around before the age of 25 and say to people, like, I am really and truly a man. I know you don't understand what I'm saying, but I'm a man, right? So I didn't say it that way. I didn't frame it that way in my mind. But I knew that something was really wrong and that I didn't feel right the way that I was. And I also knew that I had really severe um, issues with my body the way that it was at that time. My relationship to my own body was very fraught and painful and difficult um, during that era. But right around the age of 25 or 26 is when uh, a really important book in our communities um, was published. It's called Stone Butch Blues. And it is a semi-autobiographical novel that was written by um, a queer activist named Les Feinberg. And so in the book, the character, who really is a version of the author, um, undergoes what we call undergoes what we call top surgery, so surgery on the chest, and begins to take um, testosterone, begins to take hormone replacement therapy. So for me, that was the very first time I had ever encountered the idea that, that there was somebody like me out there or that those things existed. Prior to reading that book, I had never it had never occurred to me that there were medical treatments that a person like me could do to feel better in their body and to have a body that better matched what they knew to be true about themselves. So I had never even known that there was what we would call a transgender man. I didn't know that there was such a thing as that, even though I myself was that. So it was that really important age when I read that book, when I finally had some language and could start to start to explore that identity and figure out where I fit into that picture and how to move forward with making my life work better for me. And I will tell you that it was even still eight years after that before I took my first medical step. I think only because I was just so fearful. It was such a fearful thing to have to step into and not know what would happen on the other side, not know if the people you loved were still going to love you, you know, no, not ever meeting anybody who'd been through these things before to have any kind of a context for it's okay, you come out the other side and you're okay. So it was a, it was a difficult thing, but I think for me, I, I know there was some relief right around 26 when I finally was able to get my hands around it and, and, and speak to it in a way that other people could understand so I could finally express myself. Well, at this time, there's no New Mexico, there's no Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, so all you have is this book, and what else to kind of help you through this? Well, luckily, I think that at that time in the LGBTQ communities, we were starting to have more conversations about this. This was starting to come up differently. So I had friends and community members that I could start to sort of bounce some of these ideas off of and, and play with some of these concepts and conversation um, that was really helpful. Well, Adrian, this is the point of the broadcast where I get to ask you just a really quick question, and there are only two rules. Your answer cannot be Donald Trump, and you've only got five <laughs> seconds to give me your answer. Okay. Are, you, are you ready? I think so. We'll see. Okay, somebody who's in the news right now, and it, I, when I say news, I don't necessarily mean political. It could be a politician. It could be an athlete. It could be an entertainer, a writer, or even a podcaster. Who is it right now who you believe is famous for all the wrong reasons and who is you know, kind of a jerk, kind of a jackass, kind of a clown, kind of a moron. Uh, you've got five seconds. One, two, three, go. <laughs> well, I 
I don't know. I mean, the first person who comes into my mind right now, probably because you restricted Donald Trump as a response, is um, Vice President Pence. I know for us, it's not it's not so much a buffoonery thing, although it is weird that he calls his wife's mother. For, for most of us, we find that a little strange. Um, but really, he's so vitriolically anti-LGBTQ that I think many of us find him to be a really um, fearful member of the of the uh, administration. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Vice President Mike Pence is our jabroni of the week. Our jabroni of the <laughs> week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575 650 6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. Adrian, we were talking about uh, kind of people that you might have been able to lean on uh, during the time when you decided to take that next next step uh, and during that process before which you even took your first medical step. Um, you were talking before about being a, a kid and, and not even knowing or the trans transgender not even being a word. I remember, you and I are about the same age, you're a few years older than I am, but I remember uh, the term transvestite uh, kind of being uh, used and thrown around a lot. And when I was growing up, I don't know if it was the same in Mississippi, but a rite of passage kind of as a teenager was the first time you went to the midnight showing at Fair Oaks Mall Movie Theater of uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Is that something that has aged well or not aged well? You know, everybody in our communities is going to have their own opinions about media, especially, I think, things from the past like that. But for me, 100%, I still love Rocky Horror. I don't know how you cannot love Tim Curry, and I think it's great. I think it's amazing that they were willing to, you know, have the, these types of characters on screen and explore them in a way that I don't think was necessarily meant to um, denigrate or diminish those characters. And that's what, that's what I tend to look for. Right, is we can look back and see some examples in the media portrayals of trans folks that are so heinous and violent and mock trans people and belittle trans people. And so when I look back that far in history and see things that, you know, maybe they didn't get every single thing right, but it, but it wasn't meant to be a joke or a cruelty, I tend to respond positively to it still. And I'm just like you. When I was a teen, we definitely were going and seeing it and throwing rice at the screen. And I think for a lot of people, that, that you know, when I train, one of the things that I ask when I teach Transgender 101 is, what's your first memory of ever ever seeing a gender variant person or, or possibly a trans person, but at least somebody who was violating gender norms? And I can't tell you how often that's the answer. Well, as far as media portrayals, I think we've come a long way, and I would be surprised if you have not heard of the TV show called I Am Jazz. Mm, of course. Have you had any opportunity to interact with Jazz? Have you ever met her uh, at any kind of uh, event or anything? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a pretty small community. I think those of us who are out um, trying to do public advocacy, so definitely we have met at conferences and um, in different spaces. Well, she was obviously very fortunate um, to have... When she realized, I believe at the age of two or three, that she, although she was born uh, assigned male at birth, that she was a she was a girl, she was a female, and she was very fortunate to have parents who not, uh, you know, still today, but then were were encouraging and accepting and and nurtured and fostered 
uh, her her inclinations to to be who she knew herself to be, and um, that's something I think the show's been on maybe three, four, five seasons. Um, interestingly enough, I know in the past, I believe two seasons ago, when she was visiting doctors, she was getting ready to turn eighteen and getting consults for her bottom surgery. One of the drawbacks to her having taken uh, hormone blockers uh, before puberty to prevent things like a large Adam's apple and the square jaw and the deep voice was that the hormone blockers stunted the growth of her, her at that time, male genitalia and mm-hmm. gave the doctors less material with which to work. And it turned out to be um, a, a bit of a challenge. And there were some even complications after her surgery and there were subsequent surgeries to deal with some of the complications. It seems to me that that's one of the things that I, you, you might not even think of when you're, when you're thinking of, you, you know, you think you're thinking ahead and you do all these things to help prevent some of the, the hurdles that trans, especially trans women have uh, in, in kind of leaving behind their male identity with some of their physical features. And it just, it goes to show a lot of the complications that, that people in the trans community have to deal with. Exactly. I love the way you just said that too. I think that, you know, but that's where many um, young people and parents are coming from is that so many of those secondary sex traits are either irreversible or so hard to reverse that why would we want a trans adolescent to develop those traits and then have to contend with that in adulthood? So this wrinkle is something that's newly coming up as we have more and more young people who are being able to access treatment and access blockers, which we know is probably saving their lives. Many, many, many trans adolescents have attempted suicide and have been willing to talk about it because their puberty began and either the period starts for trans boys or the breasts start to develop or for the trans girls, you know, the beard starts to come in or the height or the Adam's apple, like you said, and it causes them to actually end their lives because it panics them so badly. So we have some really, I know there are some really bright medical minds trying to think about how to do effective genital surgeries when you have a history of using the blockers, and I know they're trying to come up with some creative and, um, you know, previously unthought of ways to, um, yeah, get enough tissue to work with and, and make sure that those surgical outcomes are really positive for folks. It seems like it's been a million years since we were talking about bathrooms. Um, so much has happened, and, and, you know, the news cycle is such that a big a big event happens, and I mean, hell, it seems like, you know, March, when we first went into lockdown here in New Mexico, it seems like it was a lifetime ago. But anyway, it's been a few years since people were talking a lot about bathrooms. Do you feel like, and and this isn't to say in the least, that, or to suggest in the least, that uh, the LGBTQ and plus community has arrived, if you will, with regard to being fully accepted and fully recognized as, as uh, equal members of our of our world with, with all the same equal protections? Do you feel like trans rights are kind of the final frontier with regard to that community? I do right now, but I think that that's always the thing is that once you do that, then something else comes up and you're like, oh, sure, there was always that waiting, you know? Because even within trans rights, what we've seen is when we make some sort of advance, there's another piece behind that waiting um, to be dealt with, right? So maybe we've maybe we've made some progress on bathrooms, but now what we find are these really hateful, very cruel bills coming across the country trying to prevent trans students from participating in athletics. So trans student athletes feel like one of the next big blocks that we have to deal with, as well as trans folks in correctional settings. 
in facilities of incarceration. So a lot of times when those two things come up, even people who who feel like allies to the trans communities have have objections and questions and preconceived notions about those areas. So I don't know. I mean, I feel I do feel that you know right now the trans communities are the are the are the furthest behind out of the LGBTQ. But I imagine that if trans people ever achieve full integration, equity, and access, there will be something else that we haven't thought of that that has to be obtained. Well, let me play devil's advocate here for just a second, because I know this is something that comes up a lot. And, and uh, I think you we don't know each other too well. I, we've interacted on, on social media a little bit. I'm somebody who's always considered myself to be an ally to, to your community. And I know that one of the things you brought up was the the equality and the ability of uh, members of the trans community to compete in sporting events. And I know that one of the concerns has been, you know, transgender females, you know, men, it's look, it's no secret. Men, biological men generally are larger, stronger, uh, faster. um, And that's why we split up. We have women's men's uh, women's events and men's events. Is it really fair for somebody who is who has just made that uh, come to terms with uh, with the fact that they're ready to to identify and go public with with being a trans a trans female, but who is uh, let's say in in the area of boxing or mixed martial arts, who has all all the biological uh, qualities uh, including strength, size, speed of a man? Is it really safe or really fair to to have somebody like that competing against cis uh, biological women? Well, I think that's a super interesting example because we have a, a trans woman who is a mixed martial arts fighter. Her name is Fallon Fox. And the interesting thing about fighting sports is that you do it by weight class. Um, so, you know, the, the, the thing that Fallon was able to report back about, about her experiences in that world was that she, you know, cisgender women <clears throat> produce testosterone within their body naturally. Right, men and women both have estrogen and testosterone in their bodies, but transgender women actually have to take a testosterone blocking medication in order for estrogen to feminize them at all. So, among her competitors, Fallon was the only woman in the ring who actually didn't have any testosterone in her system and was taking 16 milligrams of estrogen on top of that. So, what they what they came to find out was that she actually struggled. In terms of stamina, and a lot of times her opponent, she had to do extra training and special training to try to improve her stamina so that it was as good as her cis female opponent. That's something I never would have even thought of. <clears throat> with all the services right. you guys, with all the services you're providing at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, each of us, no matter what we do for a living or how we live our lives, has been affected by the lockdown and the limitations on our movement uh, during the past five or six months. How has uh, COVID affected your ability to provide resources to the community the way you were doing it before? We've been so delighted that really, in many ways, it hasn't. So many of the folks that contact us contact us through the phone or the website, email, social media, and that's just been still going on nonstop. All of the trainings that I used to do in person we're now doing on Zoom, so we've been able to just port that stuff onto Zoom. All of our support groups are meeting via Zoom right now. And our facility here in Albuquerque is still open three days a week instead of five, but we're still providing all of the same services. So we're really thrilled 
that for us, we haven't really had to change that much about what we're doing, and we're still able to reach the people who so much need us. But what we have found is that in our communities, there is some struggle um, to the pandemic situation, and certainly among young people in particular, um, we know that there are some young trans folks who have had to move back home or who are stuck at home now whose parents are hostile or oppositional to their trans um, identities. So that's been a really hard thing for some folks. You mentioned a little bit earlier when I was asking you about some of the services uh, your Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico provides, and you mentioned something, and I don't remember the terminology, but something about food for the homeless or something like that. Um, another podcast I was listening to uh, some time ago uh, talked about the the tendency towards so many trans youth, trans teenagers, uh, for a myriad reasons, but a lot of a lot of which have to do with not being accepted by their families, for them to have to kind of move out of the house and turn to what one person coined a term as survival sex and to become sex workers. Um, is that something, what percentage uh, are, do you know of trans youth end up uh, for one reason or the other, uh, either living on the streets and or living on the streets and having to, to, to turn to sex work uh, to, to survive? It's really hard for us to do percentages because we don't really have a great baseline <clears throat> yet on the size of the trans population, period. So we don't even know what we're talking about in terms of how many trans people are there in the United States, in New Mexico, in Bernalillo County, in Albuquerque. We don't have the, the base number. So then, we, we, you know, it's really hard to say, like, is it half of these folks? Is it 25%? We don't really know, but... I will tell you the statistic that we hear a lot is that 40% of, LG, of, of youth who are experiencing homelessness are LGBTQ. And I think that the, the vast majority of those young people are gender variant, not meaning that they're trans necessarily, but that there's something about their gender presentation that caused the rift with the family more than the sexual orientation. Well, Adrian, you obviously take great pride in, and I would imagine have a lot of fun uh, and enjoy doing what you do for a living. Are there days you ever wake up and think to yourself, you know what, I'm sick of having to teach people how to be nice to me and how to understand me <laughs> and how to treat me with the, the kind of dignity and respect with which you know, each human being should be, should be treated? Sure. I don't think I know anybody who does this kind of work who doesn't have one day once in a while and feel that way. But you're right. I am really proud of what we do. And, and typically I wake up really excited because I know that these trainings, we know these trainings have changed policy. We know they've changed people's hearts and minds. We know they've changed their behavior. So I'm, I, I definitely have had that feeling. I can relate to it. But also, you know, for me, it's a, it's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to be part of an effort that actually does help make the world better for other folks like me. And that's, to me, something that I don't take for granted. Well, with regard to what you do for a living, and of course, uh, with regard to your reason for you know being my guest on this podcast today, you are a trans man. But beyond that, you're just a man, and um, you are not just a trans person. You're somebody who you know likes sports and books and movies and things like that. You are a member of a band, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, the band is called a band named Sue. That's right. Tell me about that. Oh, we have so much fun. I don't know if other people have fun listening to us, but we sure have fun doing it. We are, I guess what they these days want to call like Americana or country. Um, we have a guitar, a fiddle, a banjo, and a bass. And 
four singers. So we just, we have the most fun. We're an acoustic band, typically country, bluegrass, that type of thing. And I'm, as a country music fan myself, I think I have a pretty good idea what the inspiration was for the name of your band. It's that Johnny Cash song, right? A Boy Named Sue, which we loved because everybody in the band is um, LGBTQ, so we just thought it was fun to have a name that was a little bit of a, a little bit gender bending that way. And also for me, I'm a long lifetime uh, Shel Silverstein fan, the the author and poet who did a lot of kids books, but also other things. And um, people don't always realize it, but it's Shel Silverstein who wrote that song, A Boy Named Sue. I had no idea, and I actually, we were in Santa Fe a couple years ago, and I saw The End of a Sidewalk, and I took a picture of it, because I think we all remember that book, Where the Sidewalk Ends. What was the other big one sure. he had? Uh, a Light in the Attic, I think, there was the go. other big poetry book, yeah. So, do you, we know that you're a musician, we know that you've been in, heavily influenced by country music. i got a couple of quick hitters right here for you. Uh, if you had to make a choice, Willie or Waylon? Willie. Merle Haggard or Johnny Cash? Oh, you're hurting my feelings right now. Well, I can't stand to say it, but I gotta say Merle. And finally, Rebels or Bulldogs? Oh, come on, Rebels all the way. Well, there you have it, uh, Adrian Lawyer. Thank you so much for being my guest today. This has been uh, season one, episode three of the Square Peg Podcast. Next week on episode four of season one, we're going to have uh, basketball coach turned creative writing professor Russ Bradbird. Adrian, thank you so much. Do you want to give a, a, a plug or a shout-out to the Transgender Resource Center? If anybody wants to donate money or just wants to look you up on the web, you want to, you want to give us uh, an idea of how we can do that? Absolutely. We're on the web at www.tgrcnm.org. We're also on Facebook. You can donate either one of those places. And for the last two years, we've been operating an amazing thrift store here in Albuquerque as well called thrift a lot on lomas so if you're someone who donates to thrift stores please think about thrift a lot and if you'd like to go thrift shopping please check it out it's a gorgeous store all the money comes back into our programs and we're creating jobs for trans and non-binary folks there as well adrian thank you for being you thank you for doing the work that you do and thank you for being on our podcast today so long thank you this has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>